You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. Thank you for listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Harold Holzer. Uh, his titles and accomplishments could fill this entire podcast. So uh, to introduce him, I'll simply say what somebody said yesterday. We're probably talking to the most preeminent Lincoln scholar of our time uh, and maybe of all time. Uh, but uh, Mr. Holzer is here to talk about his new book, Monument Man, The Life and Art of Daniel Chester French, who is the sculptor uh, of the Lincoln statue in the Lincoln Memorial. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Holzer. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be here. Are we allowed to say that we're talking from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania? Yes, there you go. I rushed through the intro, so thank you for catching that. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're at the Lincoln Forum, um, which uh, is an annual meeting of Lincoln enthusiasts here in Gettysburg around the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address. Uh, so we're we're talking to each other at the middle of day two of the Lincoln Forum. And day one, uh, there was uh, a very great speaker, Ed Ayers, right. uh, who, who gave a presentation called The Web of War and sort of zoomed out at the Gettysburg Battle, and it was all about movement and connections. Um, uh, today we were treated to uh, Mr. Holzer's uh, presentation on his brand new book, and one of the perks of being here is that I actually got a copy of the book, which is not available yet. It's not officially published until the spring, which usually means January. But we, I, like to, I always like to introduce my books at the Lincoln Forum because I've been coming here for 23 years, and uh, it's sort of a family, and uh, it's exciting to do the debuts here. Uh, so we, we talked about, um, well, let's start like this. Reading the book, which I read almost all of it last night and, and a little this morning. You're a hero. Um, there are a lot of parallels, I think, with your own life and your own career. Um, here's a man. Uh, he sculpted the Lincoln statue. He, he had a lot of other uh, very um, prominent projects. But he spent a lot of time with Lincoln. Uh, and one of the quotes uh, that, he, that you have in the book is something like, I've spent most, so much time with Lincoln that I feel like we're personal friends. Yeah. Have you ever felt that at some point? I mean, or do you feel it all the time? You know, it's interesting. As, as a, it's a great stumper for an opening question, I will say. But I don't. I, f- I feel more like I'm in uh, in awe of Lincoln. Always more reverence. I know he had the common touch, and he was um, approachable in real life as well as uh, in the image that he cultivated and projected. But I find him so, um, I guess, as I did when I first started looking into his life when I was a kid, almost godlike. I mean, he, his majesty with words, his, his patience, his, uh, his courage, his uh, sacrifices, his um, equanimity and his concerns for people of you know, all backgrounds, both races. It just strikes me as such a, a high ideal uh, I don't find him as approachable as other people, so I don't think of him as a friend. Interestingly, I think of him as a an uber parent or example. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, in so in your book, I think one of the things I was most fascinated by, uh, in the way your book plays out. I mean, you have pictures 
you're explaining the process. I loved the process yeah. that he went through, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to do public to do big statues, because people think people think of it. And I now that I'm talking to you, I think I when next iteration of this talk, I will make the comparison. People when people think of a big sculpture, they think of Michelangelo with a chisel. He bought a block of marble. They've read Irving Stone, The Agony and the Ecstasy. And he gets a chisel on a block of marble and chip, 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 chip. After a year, suddenly Lincoln emerges. That's not the way it was done in the modern era, as you point out. They would start with a little clay model, then he would make a plaster, then he would make a bigger model, and then he would use measurements and make a third model. And then a, he might make a life-size model or he might not. He would then turn over the product to marble cutters or bronze foundries, and it, and then he would do finishing touches on the final product. And it was that was considered sculpting. So there is a lot of uh, effort now to recognize, I mean, I don't buy into all of it, but to recognize the people who we know participated in the process along the way, like the immigrant marble cutters who carved the Lincoln Memorial by following his, his designs. So... It was a group effort in a certain way. He and, had an assembly line. And so you have that physical process, and then you also have a political process involved in all of the, the monuments that he made. He made the Minuteman sculpture in Concord. Right. Uh, he, obviously, the Lincoln Memorial. There's the, the Sheridan statue, which, if we can, a little bit later yeah. we could talk about. It's in Albany. Um, you... He was tugged in a lot of different directions, depending on who was involved. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Something that, that I'm a novice. I don't know a lot about sculpting and, and being an artist. Uh, it's Your vision's involved, but you're also getting hammered from the outside. It's a great point. First of all, you're absolutely right. You've hit on a very important fact, which is he didn't do Sheridan and then say okay, I'm done, let's move on to the Lincoln Memorial. Done with that, let's move on to Seward in Florida, New York, which was one of his last works. It didn't work like that. He's got six, in his prime, he had five or six major things going at different stages in New York and in Stockbridge, which is pretty close to Albany. And, um, you know, when the summer starts, and for him that's May, everything he was working on would be shipped by rail uh, or truck later to Stockbridge. November, that would be shipped back to New York City. And, you know, he could be working on a three-foot model of the Lincoln Memorial and a 10-foot model of the Nebraska Lincoln, or vice versa. And, yeah, he had to, he had to supervise, he had to maintain. He had a, a room in his studio that was just devoted to clay and plaster. Yet the floor of his main studio you could open a trap door, and there were railroad tracks underneath. And you could push the platform out into the garden, and he could work on on plasters and uh, from in outdoors to see what the perspective is like. Later, he got a different studio nearby and a different railroad track, and he could go down an embankment so he could measure exactly what the perspective would be looking up a hill, imagining a pedestal. So and, and the carving is different. So, yeah, he was always doing... And you mentioned political. I mean, it's small P, but it's also capital P. Um, he's dealing with legislatures. He's dealing with the governor of New York on the Sheridan Project, which we'll get back to because it's interesting. He's dealing with them about uh, Saratoga. Um, he's dealing with uh, 
uh, with uh, uh, officials in Georgia and uh, in uh, Illinois, mayors, commissions. So yes, a lot of a lot of uh, concurrent issues that are going on. So he was a he was a master businessman. He was a salesman. He was an art connoisseur. He was um, he was a member of the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He was a champion of American art. He was uh, he was uh, all of the above at the same time. And and so um, you. you we are, of course, in the middle of the forum, and there are a lot of people. Mr. Holzer is a celebrity here. I mean, he doesn't have to buy a drink well, the whole weekend. The, I don't like to date what we're doing, but we are, well, as long as we said when the forum is, we are uh, recovering from a mid-November climate change snowstorm. So some of the people um, who, have, who were supposed to be at the forum yesterday morning uh, are just arriving. Uh, someone just arrived, I saw, from Dayton, Ohio. Someone just arrived from Rochester, and they've missed too much. It, it breaks my heart. Yeah, I, I was delayed a little bit yesterday, but I did make it on time coming from upstate New York. Um, so, the, again, just to, I learned a lot about sculpting uh, that I never thought in a history book that I, you know, especially one written by you, but <laughs> it makes sense you work at the Metropolitan Museum, or, or you I did. Used, you yeah. did, okay. Um, so here you have this unique perspective as a Lincoln scholar, somebody who knows how to dig into sources and, 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 right. and create a narrative. But you also, uh, and you even mentioned it in your presentation just now, um, French didn't come out and say a lot of things. His, uh, his diaries were, there wasn't a lot to him, uh, at least from, from what no, I gathered. He, he spoke... He said specifically, I want to speak through my art. I want my art to speak for me. Whatever I am, I am through my sculpture. Um, and, it, and when you talk to him, he was not the, the, a barrel of laughs. You know, he was very, sort of a very prosaic uh, guy. He, the, someone said, to him, said of, of him in the 1920s, um, he has the same sense of humor as President Coolidge. And I don't know whether that was supposed to be a compliment or not a compliment. He's very dry, very New England, uh, uh, dry wit. Um, you know, he was an artist. He didn't look like an artist. He looked like a businessman, which he was. He was brilliant, brilliant. Uh, defender of his copyrights and uh, a reproducer of everything he did. You know, he, he kept, he was very smart. He would keep, he would retain the rights to the design so that when he's got gigantic commissions for the Lincoln Memorial, for example, 50 grand, he still retained the right to make bronze copies that he could sell for his own, you know, it's his own creation. Which is where he made most of his money, yeah, correct? and he, he made a lot of yeah. money because mm -hmm. his homes are spectacular. And he owned a studio building in New York City and he, he owned a town home in New York City and gorgeous property in Stockbridge. He traveled the world. I mean, he was not a big spender. You know, he chose a... When he went to uh, uh, Italy for his daughter's wedding, he didn't stay at the most lavish, the most lavish hotel uh, in Sicily. He stayed at a sort of just above a pensione, but <laughs> eh, you know, he left a lot of money. Um, so the another great part of your book, and again, this is it's the sort of perfect 19th century artist story. I, you could see this in a movie. You know, he's sort of. Um, uh, with his with his wife, when he courted his wife, his wife was his model, um, and his cousin, and his first cousin. Yeah. 
Um, but the fact that he was a very dedicated to sculpting and an artist, it almost got in the way. There's a great quote in your book where she, you know, I think she says uh, the, the, the statue's arm almost got in the way of our marriage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it was the foot. But it's the a, foot. But yeah, you know, um, right before they were going to get married, and of course they had a June wedding date, I think, um, um, he, he had a very peculiar relationship with Augustus St. Gaudens. St. Gaudens was not that much older, but St. Gaudens acted as if he was much the senior. And he was the most famous sculptor in America. He died young, which may have helped French, you know, ele become elevated to the to the pinnacle. But St. Gaudens, you know, commented on some of his work as it was in process, and it would usually hurt him very much um, if he didn't get the most lavish praise from St. Gaudens. Then when he got praise, he didn't like that either because he thought St. Thought Gaudens was acting paternalistically. So St. Gaudens uh, said that um, he loved his statue of Gallaudet from Gallaudet College, but that the legs, oh, there's something about the feet being a little... So he postponed his wedding to fix the clay and plaster models. Uh, as a, a gal, so he always got to them. Uh, and, but they were friends. And it was St. Gaudens who recommended French for the World's Columbia Exposition in Chicago, which really made his reputation. Uh, th another great uh, relationship in your book with his father, um, which his father, who was a, a prominent lawyer uh, and ended up serving in several administrations in the Department of Treasury, uh, supported his. I think he initially wanted uh, French to be a lawyer and follow in his footsteps. He, 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 but that was when he was born. He sent him to MIT. Um, you know, they lived in Concord. MIT was in Boston in those days. I've seen the little train tracks where he would go from his house to go to school. He was not cut out for academics. He was cut out for taking clay. And so his father was disappointed. But, you know, his older son became a, a museum um, executive uh, and artist. So something in that family was rather artistic. Um, I don't know, the girls didn't, uh, the sisters didn't demonstrate it, but they probably weren't encouraged to. But yeah, the fa it turned out to be a very artistic family. And there's a great scene where they're, they're wrestling with one of the statues. Uh, I forget, it might have been the Minuteman, and, and the head fell off. And, and well, the f the French was told, I mean, he was making a, a statue. And again, uh, and, and I want to make one generic comment about process after this. Mm -hmm. But so he's got this wonderful clay and to the next process is to make a plaster so you have to pour plaster into the clay so they turn it upside down they open they open it in a delicate part of one's anatomy and they pour the plaster in well the plaster came down so fast that the head nearly they had to hold the head up because they didn't know what they were doing although the process didn't change that much so you asked about process so i um you know i've written a lot of books about Lincoln art in various iterations, both um, public uh, um, reproductions like prints and original paintings. I'm very fascinated with, probably because I'm so, I, I can't understand how people can take a blank piece of paper or a cube of clay and make reality and magic out of it. I'm so in awe of that. But the process is always different than what people expect, especially now. Uh, um, and um, uh, Great paintings of the 19th century onward are almost all indebted to photographs, for example, even if they have life sittings. Um, everything from uh, the, the early statue, uh, photographs of Lincoln to the wonderful portrait of Mario Cuomo in 
the governor's hall out in the state capitol, all both life photographs and, and such. So, yeah, the process fascinates me. And, and French had a genius, but he also had the skill to make an assembly line. And uh, every, everything has to get ever larger, every step bigger and bigger and bigger, but has to be true to that little six-inch clay model. And you see that play out in your book with the pictures. I mean, you, you start out with the... Another thing I didn't realize is the... Th I'm, I, I'm very naive when it comes to the art, but he would sketch and even sculpt the naked body and then consider oh, how, yeah. the, how the clothes would then lay on the body. And he would put a lot of thought into, well, what is this figure thinking about? Uh, and even after the whole process was done, the, the great picture in your book, the com comparison between the lighting on the Lincoln Monument. Yeah. Uh, he had, lighting was crucial. And um, well, you, you're opening up so many areas of discussion, which is great. But on the subject of um, doing a, a naked or an unclothed torso first and then adding clothes, that is a modern technique. I have a friend uh, named Frank Porco who sculpts out of um, uh, Queens and has done a great Lincoln, by the way. Um, that who does that same technique? He does a torso and then he adds the clothes with clay. The 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 Renaissance sculptors didn't do that because they had a block of marble. They were chipping down and outlining it in their heads. So you couldn't do the you had to do the drapes while you were doing the the sculpting. And the Greeks the same thing, obviously. So totally, totally different, um, a totally different process. And you said something else, and now I've forgotten about well, it. Well, just the so with the Minuteman, um, there was a lot of thought put into well, who is this guy? Right. Uh, and it may have been French a little bit because you know supposedly when he had a studio in downtown Boston, he would take his clothes off and use a full length mirror and do his legs and his you know. He, but he was too skinny to be the Minuteman, so they got um, uh, a farmer from the area to pose at least for the for the arms and the and the chest. Um, and, oh, you were talking about sketches. So French sketched for the Minuteman. We don't have records of any other sketches that he did. Very, very few, if any. Now, one of the reasons may be that he just didn't do it. He saw things in 3D to start. But another, we do know that he had a blackboard in his Washington studio and in his Concord studio. So it's possible he would sketch things in chalk. And then, of course, that's the most perishable thing. You just erase it and move on. So we don't. So his process became almost exclusively three-dimensional. Well, and again, you can see that uh, in this book it, it play out. Um, I think the most profound thing in your book and in your presentation was the uh, dedication to the Lincoln Memorial and what happened there. It, a very American experience, um, and not in a good way. Uh, right. the segregated crowds, um, even more than they. Brutally said. Yeah, exactly. By force, at gunpoint, moving black people out of the front row seats where they'd camped out from dawn so they could get the best seats. Uh, Washington was, a, you know, what did they say? It has um, uh, southern efficiency and Norman, northern charm. But in fact, southern charm was not all that great for people of color. And uh, the, the southern um, ethos reigned. And it was it was a... Uh, the idea that African Americans could participate as equals was just, you know, angrily and sickeningly enforced, and and as I said um, in the book and when I when I spoke here at the forum, um, I don't think any, enough people have consulted the black papers because if you read the white newspapers, by you know mainstream papers, the New York Times, the Washington Post. 
Uh, I'm sure if we went through, the, did the TU, we'd find the same thing. Um, the ceremony was a triumph. Uh, yeah. North-South reconciliation, gray and blue, but it left out black. Uh, and uh, the, the Lincoln, even Frederick Douglass, when he was saying that people of color were Lincoln's stepchildren, not his children, still they weren't even treated like stepchildren. They were treated like uh, disposable um, decorations, even worse. I, um, and um, it, it was it took a long time for the link for the Lincoln Memorial to be perceived differently. I mean, it, and it's a, it's magical that of all the confluence of accidental circumstances that have rescued the Lincoln Memorial from what that original intention was to be a symbol of North South reconciliation because that's not what it is. Um, once Marian Anderson sang there in 1937 or eight. Um, uh, because she couldn't sing in the Daughters of the American Revolution Hall, where I've been. Um, and Eleanor Roosevelt, in whose home I now work in Manhattan, uh, got the government to give her the Lincoln Memorial, let her sing there. Uh, President Kennedy did not want the March on Washington to go to the Lincoln Memorial, um, but he was told, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than anything. Um, uh, he should have gone to the March on Washington, but you know, presidents 50 years ago were not as courageous about these things. And he was gone you know, two months later and not really take stock of what happened. But because it happened at the Lincoln Memorial, because, because um, Martin Luther King talked about his dream in front of Lincoln, what Lincoln had achieved came to light. How, long, how much farther we had to go came to light. And the image of the memorial became not just achievement, but hope. Well, and it, it's interesting. One of the things I learned as a grad student at SUNY Albany is that history isn't stagnant and that we, we as writers and just participants in, in, uh, in discussions like these, we assign new meaning to history. So, um, you know. And nowhere and, is that more evident. And now I, I now remember what I was going to say before, <laughs> but it's a good moment because we, you were also talking about process. So this leads us to the idea of memory and interpretation. When the Robert E. Lee statue was built in on Monument Avenue in Richmond, it was, you know, just widely applauded north and south, because here was a symbol of a gentleman, a great Southerner who, you know, accepted defeat magnanimously and did not continue a guerrilla war and knew when to quit, um, and left out the fact that when he marched through these areas of Pennsylvania, he he re-enslaved free black people and took them, sent them down into slavery, just out of brutality. Uh, and now, of course, what, what I'm getting to is there is this movement to take down or at least contextualize statues of Confederate heroes. I spoke about that last year um, on Dedication Day here in Gettysburg. Um, I did a, I was the cemetery speaker, as they say. That's a good thing. And, <laughs> um, and spoke about this. Um, so in theory, we're not in theory, but we are going through a reevaluation of public sculpture in this country. And, you know, it's interesting. We have Instagram. We have iPhones and uh, cameras on our iPhones and television and film. There's something about a public sculpture that evokes real emotion, just as much as it did when the statue of Athena was put into the Parthenon. It still evokes huge emotion, which I think is great. 
for sculptors. Now, so this getting a little tedious, but you, you asked about process. So why can't we take all these statues and put them into museums? The answer is, and French is the one who instructed me on this, when he, when he went to Paris to see his George Washington statue in situ at the Place d'Iena, he looked at it and he said, oh, I got this nostril of the horse wrong. It's too soft. It should be sharper. And he actually tried to, he got a ladder and he tried to do some burnishing. What was he saying? Well, a sculpture that you look at from the ground that's 40 or 50 feet up has to be carved at very deep, with deep gouges in the shadow areas so that they pop from below. If you take that down and put it in a museum, it's going to look like a gross caricature. So I don't know how you solve that. And problem. he and he uh, was very uh, interested in where the sculpture was going to be. So that that was all. He, uh, there's a quote I think you said in your presentation, or I read in the book, where uh, he'd rather a bad uh, statue in a good area than than yeah. vice versa. Well, he very much cared about the settings. Mm -hmm. He very much cared about the light and the money. And the art, you know, all of the above, and not in that order. Um, he did a beautiful, he became, you know, he, uh, one thing I, I didn't talk about in this talk here, because we're in, you know, hallowed Civil War and Lincoln ground, I did not talk about the, um, uh, his specialty in wings. Not, not Paul McCartney, but <laughs> angel wings. Denny Lane. Right. <laughs> I, that one I don't even know. So um, he... Um, he was uh, the creator of many winged gods and goddesses in his day. And there's a beautiful one in Saratoga, the Spirit of Life, which he did for the Spencer Trask Memorial, uh, one of his great patrons, uh, uh, patron-artist relationships drew out of, grew out of that beautiful Saratoga commission. Um, but um, he became like the best sculptor of wings. Well, how did he... How did, he, how did he do it? Well, he called up his childhood friend, Will Brewster. They used to go bird watching together. They kept bird specimens all over Brewster's house. They made a little, you know, as kids, they made a museum. The other kids were playing ball, and this is what these kids were doing. And Brewster became the most famous ornithologist in America, the author of books and guides. And so he, he would call Brewster up and the Actually, I don't know if he called them up. I don't even know what they were telephones. <laughs> he contacted Brewster and said, I'm doing this. I need you to send me three ringlets and six robins and two. So we get these collections of wings that he could copy. So those relationships and his interest in, in, in the wing things, it's a whole other side to him as the symbolic side. And as you pointed he, out, he, he did. on the day of Lincoln's assassination, the only entry in his diary is that he found a certain type of bird that day, the first sighting of, uh, yeah. of that bird on the, uh, of spring. I, I mean, in all fairness, it was all about birds. But April 15th, 1865, I don't say, saw the first <laughs> ruby-knighted uh, whatever on the day that our great president died. Just didn't enter his mind. He was so fixated even then on what he was interested in. Well, if I could ask you a, a question before I let you go about your process. Um, as some, Sure. As don't forget we have to talk about Albany, though. Yes. And okay. we have to talk about um, um, Sheridan. Well, we'll start with Sheridan okay. um, because and it, it, it fits right in with the... I love to give a local angle. I mean, the good thing about French, one of the good things, is that he made his mark in so many areas of the country, Chicago, New York City, um, Lincoln, Nebraska, Washington, Boston, uh, you know, and this is his 
Well, there is Saratoga, but the Albany thing is really interesting. Well, and we had our own controversy in Albany a couple years ago. Uh, somebody had graffitied the Sheridan statue. And uh, something well, I along... I remember when it was green. So now it's oh. beautifully restored, at least. Uh, it, it, Why we, would someone graffiti share it? Well, it, it, it the, the, tec the text was something like a native killer. So uh, oh, it was about the controversy with well, Sheridan and the Native Americans. Of course, I should have realized that. And there you go, right? One man's hero is another man's um, uh, genocide promoter. And Sheridan, I believe it was he who said the only good Indian is a dead Indian. So that would make him a controversial figure. And, it, and it's funny because early on, we fought. The people fought over getting Sheridan statue. They, they Ohio wanted them, and then Albany wanted them. New York wanted them. So, by the way, he he has more than his share of statues. In fact, um, there was a lot of controversy about how do, how do you do Sheridan's ride? You know, the most famous one of the most famous single person incidents of the war, and very influential even in the eighteen sixty four election in turning the tide for Lincoln. Um, and, you know, he was a little guy, hence the nickname Little Phil. Um, so people struggled about how to make him look dramatic. And the problem with the Albany, to some some believe, is that it's an older Sheridan, and it's the Indian Wars Sheridan. For French, it was very simple. Jake Hugh A. Ward had helped him as a young man. He had come to his studio and said, I want to be an apprentice, and, and Ward said no. And he said, please, and Ward said, and he said, please, enough times that Ward said, okay, just move stuff around, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, I think Sherry was actually <laughs> say that, the, and we hear clicks of <laughs> boots, boots. So we're in a moment when reenactors are going out <laughs> to the battlefield area for dedication day parade, and I think Phil Sheridan may have just gone by. <laughs> Didn't know we were talking Rallying about. the troops. Rallying the troops, exactly. <laughs> so Mrs. Ward lost a, a Sheridan commission after he died. Uh, he was fighting about it um, with an artist that that um, French didn't like. So he helped her. He helped her get money and just helped, you know, get the commission done. He, he probably worked on it himself and made it a little better. And, uh, and there it, it sits. And it's another example of that uh, <coughs> process that uh, beyond the actual art of it, uh, John Quincy Adams Ward was having issues with everybody, with Sheridan's family in particular. And Sheridan's family. Mrs. Sheridan was tough. She didn't like it. She didn't like his models. And so um, that's a consideration, again, as a novice when it comes to this stuff that I, you know, artists have to consider. And he battled with that a lot, uh, uh, French did. And, um, you know, it's hard to do the ride. Um, the, the guy who wrote the poem, Sheridan's Ride, you know, made Rienzi famous, the horse. Um, uh, Thomas Buchanan Reed also painted a famous painting, which he must have duplicated 30 times. Um, you can do that because you can show the four feet flying off the ground um, in a painting. Right. You can't do that in a statue unless it's a merry-go-round uh, horse. So that was one of the inhibiting factors of... And uh, So anyway, that's his mark in Albany, is really... The, helping the widow of a mentor, uh, which is a nice thing, I think. Well, and and now to to get to your process, okay. uh, and your uh, over fifty books, uh, countless articles, um, and different works. What does it take? I mean, as somebody who uh, aspires to maybe write one book, uh, what does it take to 
um, and there's a couple aspects if, to this question, if, if you'll allow me, to, to, to um, get such a grasp of the sources. I mean, you, most of your books are about Lincoln or some aspect of Lincoln. Um, how, do you, how do you organize those sources? I would imagine you have to be incredibly organized to produce the way you do. Is that important? You want all of my state secrets. <laughs> um, Only what you're willing to give. Okay, well, um, and, and I will say that I'm Daniel Chester French-like in that I'm, I am sort of doing two projects, several projects at once all the time. I'm, I'm doing two books at the moment, although three actually. Wow. I know, at different stages, and that's crazy. It's not ideal. So strike that. I don't want to use that. I, I don't <laughs> recommend it. But in terms of process, so, you know, there is the research phase um, the outline comprehension phase, and then the writing, and then there's the. I am. A, I wish that I wrote really cleanly and did not have to go back. But I'm a. I, I'm constantly rewriting. I don't know how I ever wrote books without the computer, before the computer era, which I did, um, because uh, I just I love to go over things and redo them and hear things differently and. Um, you see the lines arranged differently, then you see words you repeat that you didn't see the first time. So, but in terms of my th my um, process of organizing um, notes and things is very different from, say, Ron Chernow's or Robert Caro's, who are devotees of index cards. Mm -hmm. Their homes are filled with index cards, and that's how they work. Bob Caro, and I'm not giving away any secrets here because he's done this, shown this on TV, has a bulletin board behind his desk and pieces of yellow legal paper with different sections of a chapter, and then he moves them around by thumbtack. So I have all of my, I keep files, chapters in files, or subject matter in files. So I have three banker's boxes filled with Daniel Chester French material. And it will say Sheridan, or it will say... Uh, Washington in Paris, or um, you know, Lincoln Memorial is three files, and Lincoln, Nebraska is two, and I just will make xeroxes of newspaper clippings and uh, letters, and if I take notes in the French papers at the Library of Congress, I'll put the transcripts, and then that, so when I'm ready to tackle the, that part of the story, I have one file that's sort of multimedia. It'll have newspaper clips, reviews magazine articles, French reminiscences, letters, uh, reviews, if I didn't say that before. And then I put them all together in a chapter. Wow. It's not a great, it's, again, it's very individualistic. And I don't really do outlines anymore in the, in the traditional way. Like I don't outline the whole book. I have, them, have it all in my head, which is a very dangerous place for it to be. But but you have the experience now to yeah. you can see your book uh, before you even write it. In I mean, a lot I of see ways. the sections. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I shouldn't plug another book, but I'm doing a book on the presidents and the press from Washington to Trump. So I see the founding era. Mm -hmm. I see the middle era, the progressive era, and the modern era. Well, that's very exciting to get that sort of sneak peek uh, yeah. and hear. Everybody's your excited work. about it. Just have to do it. Right. Um, but but right now it's all about getting Daniel Chester French back. The reputation he once had and uh, which he deserves and I think we're blessed a little bit by the fact that there's so much controversy about public sculpture he wasn't he was a, definitely uh, a sculptor for hire and I don't mean that in a critical way he did not say uh, he did, he was available he had a part of his studio was a veranda 
or a porch that looked out on the Berkshire Mountains. He situated the veranda in the, to look at the most beautiful view of the mountain. And he would pour cocktails or wine there. He would entertain customers. He would charm them. He, would, he was a salesman. Or he would enter competitions. Um, he didn't say, I want to do Lincoln. It's my moment to do Lincoln. There was a project to do Lincoln. And he said, or someone would come and say, do my Lincoln. So, you know, it wasn't like, it was almost like papal commissions. <laughs> he right, got, right. He got hired. He just did a fantastic job. Yeah, when, once he was hired, he did try to find a truth in, in, in what he Absolutely. was doing. And he, did, and, he, and he fought with patrons, you know, not, not to the death. Um, he always regretted that he did not do the George Westinghouse sculpture and that he wanted to do. They wanted a modern dress George Westinghouse, and he was uncomfortable with it. Um, uh, so there was a there was always a battle. Let's do a, a relief portrait. Let's do a full statue. Let's do a bust. And he battled it out. And he had not only enormous business acumen and discipline, and and physical strength because some of this stuff is hard to do physically. Um, and he worked in a bow tie, uh, sh formal shirt, and he would go to the studio, which was down a path, with his suit on. He would take off his jacket and put on his um, smock, but he still wore his tie. He was a very handsome man, uh, by the way, yeah, too, he was with a mustache. Yeah, he was a nice-looking young man and uh, lost his hair, so I identify <laughs> with that. But he had great hair. Man, he was... Yes, he and, did. And, oh, I've, and I couldn't help it. It was very personal... But I spent some more time than I should have maybe talking, uh, rewrite, re, <laughs> resurfacing his lamentations about his hairline, because he wrote to his his beloved, you know, girlfriend, the girlfriend who he he left sort of dangling and then didn't uh, pursue her. I couldn't, I didn't quite get that, but he. Um, he uh, lamented that you see me soon, I won't have any hair at all, which was true. Mm -hmm. But he did have this uh, very strange um, relationship with women also. So did Lincoln, so maybe I was attracted to that part of the story. Uh, he was pretty admired, right? I mean, it, it, women sort of, they sent stuff to him when he was a young sculptor. To They were eager to be part of his process. Yeah, he wasn't so eager. Yeah. I mean, he, he had the two older sculptors who took him in had very nice-looking daughters, and he made a play for them, and he should have... I think he maybe always regretted that he didn't wind up with Lizzie Ball, who was Thomas Ball's daughter. She was very beautiful. He liked blondes. He liked dancing. And he wound up with a brunette who was his first cousin. And he was pretty old when he got married. And um, he would write from Washington. You know, I, I walked down to the uh, White House grounds, and there were no girls to see. And so I think he was, you know, sort of lonely and disappointed. But uh, he may have also always had a crush on Mary, and it was inappropriate. In many ways, it was forbidden, you know, even then. Uh, people married their cousins. I mean, the Roosevelts married, but they were fifth cousins. Um, and I think he waited until his father died. Mm. Uh, I don't think he wanted to bring it up with, he, he, with, till it, with his father. But um, uh, his stepmother was, was very was nice about it. He did research into the consequences of marriage and, you know, had proof ready because he was concerned about it. And I think, you know, he might have had a crush on this young woman when she was 14 or 15 years old and just decided the best thing to do is wait. You know, they're, they, um, the romance, I, tell you, I don't know how good I am at writing romance stories, but, you know, they went to Concord, uh, back to his hometown. He wanted to show her his 
old studio, his sculptures, his Emerson, his Minuteman, and they were, there was a lovely little river in, in the Concord River, and they would take little flat boats around, and it was romantic, and they were walking up the embankment, and she slipped with her little foot in the, in the bank and fell into his arms. And then, as she said, with all, they blurted everything out, how they love each other, and they had never really... And that, you know, maybe if she hadn't tripped, he would have died a lonely old man. But she tripped. Right, right. She tripped right and into, fell. Right and he into his fell. arms. Right. Um, so if I could, if I could fit one, one more in about, um, and I'm thinking of Ed Ayer's uh, talk yesterday and his approach. Um, obviously, there's a lot out there that you've done. There's a lot out there in general uh, about Lincoln, about the Civil War. Um, what, what else is out there? Maybe not subject-wise, but the what, what new techniques and what new lens um, could we use to sort of get a different understanding? Something that, you know, a way to explore that we haven't used before. I think research uh, digitization or digitization of sources is becoming so uh, much more uh, commonplace, which is, you know, as a good thing, that it opens up avenues subject matter avenues that would have taken 20, 50 years. I mean, the Lincoln papers are still not digitized, meaning, I mean, they're, they're available online. But if you wanted to say, how many letters did Abraham Lincoln get on um, um, emancipation versus West Virginia statehood from September to January, 1862 to 63? I mean, you could count them, but how many times was the word, how many times did he use the word emancipation? Uh, versus freedom, liberty, uh, what was his word of choice? All of these kinds of things that I'm interested in now because I, I, I think I'm past the writing big new books, I think. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this, in this new analytical approach. So the books I'm working on now, one is the, the press book, which is um, sort of the old-fashioned way. But um, I'm doing Lincoln. I, I want to do Lincoln and immigration too. Oh wow! And wow. Um, I wish I could everything have everything ready for 2020, but I can't. It's a lot of work. It sounds like. Um, but if there's a man to do it, it's it's Mr. Harold Holzer. And uh, I want to thank you very much for doing this. I know it's a very busy weekend, and you are sought out by everybody here. Well, I um, thought I, I thought we were going to talk for two minutes, but I'm glad we talked. Well, it was fun. Well, thank you very much, and uh, please. Uh, look up Harold's uh, book, Monument Man, The Life and Art of Daniel Chester French. It won't be available until January, but you can pre-order it. Uh, it can be pre-ordered, and I hope to do some appearance in Albany to talk about the Albany connections and the Saratoga connections. If my friends at the Albany Institute are listening, just uh, see my agent, which is me. <laughs> I'll let them know. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks.